Hello, and welcome to the FT Advisor podcast, the weekly podcast series brought to you by FT Advisor. Each week, we'll be joined by guests from the financial services world to discuss the most pressing industry issues. In today's episode, we introduce a new segment where our reporters will talk about the headlines of the week. Centralised investment propositions have become an increasingly common part of advice businesses, with around four-fifths of all firms running some form of centralised service. They can determine the efficiency of a firm, sometimes cause regulatory headaches, and will likely be a big part of what helps bring down the cost of advice going forward. So, what does the future hold for KIPS? I'm Imogen Chu, Senior Reporter at FD Advisor, and joining me today is Mark Polson, Principal at the Lancat, Nick Etok, CEO of Inteliflow, and Tim Harvey, Director and Advisor at HR Independent Financial Services, to discuss the possibilities. Welcome to you all, and thanks very much for joining us, guys. The Landcat recently produced a report that said the total cost of a KIP could come down by 0.5% over the next five years. Um, Mark, how do you think that's going to be achieved? Uh, how realistic really is that prediction? Well, there's no reason why it shouldn't happen. Um, turkeys don't tend to vote for major winter festivals in my experience, so I'm not sure that just waiting for asset managers in particular to to cut their rates or for advisors to decide that they want to work for 0.5% instead of 1% or whatever is um, going to be particularly useful. So we're going to be looking at people coming in with new kinds of propositions from the ground up. Um, and it's popular to call those disruptors um, and that's okay, but it doesn't have to be combative. It's just that when you perhaps approach something fresh, um, you might be able to stitch things together in a different way. Um, but in the construction of what we call a centralized investment preposition or a KIP, Imogen, a KIP, <laughs> um, that's, how you, that's how you pronounce that. Um, what we're really talking about here is the the kind of supply side, the kit rather than kit, of what an advisor does for a client. So it's not the lived experience of financial planning in the room or anything like that, but it's how do we stitch together the stuff the industry supplies that turns into an engine that delivers financial plans in terms of investments and platforms and DFMs and all, and all the rest of it. When you put all the kind of constituent parts of that together at the moment, you can get something that looks very, very kind of um, RDR compliant or very MIFID and prod centric that's put together in a good spirit and in the right way, but without meaning to. The cost can just spiral. Um, and we routinely see propositions being shipped out that when you really bring together all the costs in them are well north of 2%. Um, now, nobody likes talking about that very much, but we do see it out there. Equally, there are people shipping stuff to market at well under 1.5% with everybody um, being able to make a living, I guess. Um, so it's to do with what goes in there, how it's put together. Um, so at the expensive end, there's room to come down already. Um, but even at the lower end of those reaches, by re kind of examining how this stuff is put together uh, and allowing different approaches to come in, I think there is quite a lot of potential for cost to fall. Sure. Well, what about your thoughts, Tim, from, from running uh, um, an advice business? Uh, we talk a lot about kind of how technology can solve a lot of the efficiencies of an advice business and can help bring down these costs. Um, how realistic is it for an advice firm running the firm and, and a KIP to, to be investing in all this new tech? 
Um, I, I, I don't really see as um, Nick, Nick, Nick will love this. I don't really see in many instances the cost of the technology as, as being um, uh, an obstacle. Uh, there's the old adage I've used on many uh, occasions about um, the technology being being me at the, the front end sharpening an axe so I can better chop a tree down. And if I don't in, invest in something to sharpen my my uh, my axe, well, do you know what? The tree's not going to come down that quickly. Um, <laughs> So um, I, I think where we will see some differences is that um, the, the cost will come down, and we've seen the um, the, the exposing light of, of MIFID two um, really, and, and the, the declarations of basically who's who's pulling the money out of where, who's who's diving into my clients' back pockets. I think that uh, there is going to be an inevitable pressure downwards. Uh, I don't think it's going to be uh, so much on um, ourselves at the front end. Uh, but I think those people um, with the expensive fund of funds, and I think DFMs, are going to find it increasingly difficult to to justify the um, the very generous margins that um, that they've had. Uh, you only have to look at the actively managed funds uh, using underlying passives uh, or a mixture of actives and passives uh, underneath those to see that actually you can deliver some really quite attractive uh, funds at sub sub five percent and if you look at some of them they're coming in at sort of point three and point four um now clearly a full fat uh kip um may have additional charges in there but you'd really have to question whether some of those charges are actually unnecessary administrative ones um rather than advice ones uh, sure. so that's kind of where we are at the front end really uh nick what do you think yeah, no, I, I, I tend to agree with uh, Tim's comments there in, in terms of the where the cost pressures will will occur and probably where we're more likely to see a, a, a downward movement in price. Um, I think, you know, perhaps uh, as well as the investment managers, it's quite interesting seeing some of the sort of newer style platforms and platform capabilities coming through where they're perhaps focusing on a more... Um, restrictive set of capability and interfacing with others like like ourselves practice management solutions and others to to create a more efficient way means everyone has to do a little bit less and try not to not 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 to do everything i do think the point is quite interesting about whether there will be um a downwards pressure on the advice fee because i think my instant um um sort of tendency is that they're probably that that's probably the least likely bit um the only thing I would say about that is some some of the data we've seen through, uh, we launched something called the e-advisor index a, a couple of years ago now, which looks at how well advice businesses are using technology and what difference that's making to the the number of clients they, they service, the assets under advice, revenue, and, and, and so on. And what we have seen through that is that the the people at the in the very top sort of cohort of usage, we, we call them the champions, um, they're not necessarily better advice businesses. They're just using the technology uh, better. Um, those businesses tend to have um, more clients than, than the others, typically double the, 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 the lowest cohort. And, and some of the work we've done more recently, as you start looking under the scenes of that, is some of those, there is a very slight downward pressure on the price point there for those firms, which is much more than compensated because they're servicing more more. more more people, more clients. So I think that's quite interesting. If that trend continues, and actually the overall capability um, of all of this, um, 
actually enables advisors to service more clients, which I think personally, I think is something that we, we, we as, a, as a profession need to trend towards because there's far more demand for advice than there is supply at the moment. If we can move to that, will that overall give businesses the, the opportunity to uh, advise businesses to, to slightly reduce their, the, the, the cost of advice through, through their own advice charge as well? Uh, the overall conjunction of this, I suspect, is back to, to, to Mark's, uh, to the report Mark produced, probably is somewhere circa half a percent. You would expect in most markets, right, the, the, the institution or the person closest to the end customer um, beats up the people further back in the supply chain um, to ensure that they can preserve their own margin. Um, and I think that you know, we've seen some of that. I think we've seen really, really good pressure. I'm sure the platforms wouldn't like me saying this, but really good pressure put on platforms by advisors to to get their costs under control. The fund management industry, I think, has done a marvelous job in resisting that pressure so far. <laughs> a really creditable effort there, but that can't go on forever. And I think, you know, if we weren't being recorded and we had a fund manager here, they might have a wry smile at that as well. There will come a reckoning and that this is going to change. My personal view is that the, although the revenues of advisor firms, I think, should go up, right? I think they should make more per client than they do. I think the method in which we've developed how these costs stack and how we charge uh, as a sector um, is probably ripe for looking at. And uh, I sing a little song that advisors do two things. One is really exciting and interesting, and it gets called usually financial planning, and it's about clients' lives and and connecting their finances in some way to what it is they want to achieve, whether that's in retirement or, or building up or whatever. The other part is really dull and has to do with funds and tax wrappers and all that kind of stuff. Now, this part over here, the fun bit, is unregulated, right? Financial planning is not a regulated activity as long as you don't use it for intermediating financial products and services. The bit about funds and platforms and stuff is highly regulated, and that's where the cost pressures start to come in. So when you're stitching together a regulated kind of cost chain that gets up to 2% or 2.3, we've seen some up at 2.8, 2.9, when you've got multi-asset funds to uh, the earlier point, absolutely. Um, that are kind of 180 basis points themselves, and then you stick a custody charge on it, and then you stick an advisor charge on it, guess what? It gets expensive pretty fast. Um, that feels untenable to me. And I wonder, a firm that we're working with at the moment are looking at their financial planning fees being charged on an explicit fee basis. Now you've got to charge VAT on it, but frankly, clients who are wealthy enough to afford that, that's not gonna stop them. Um, so that's there, and that takes it out of the MIFID II cost chain completely. So suddenly, their cost of production of the actual financial advice regulated element is very, very low, and actually probably under 1% all in. Uh, and in any kind of Gabriel return or anything that you do, guess what? That looks absolutely shiny. And then you have another revenue stream, which is the coaching activity, um, advising the family, you know, broad, more broadly, all the, all the kind of things that advisors do that maybe don't get remunerated enough for that side of things at the moment. So I think there's the, you know, when we're talking about changing in models, it's not just about doing the same stuff for less. It's about trying to attack what problem are we trying to solve here? And advisors do have these two complementary skill sets, but they're treated 
absolutely differently in regulation. And there's, I think there's a key in there somewhere. And are you hearing from advice firms, Mark, that those that are looking potentially to split those two paths will look to charge maybe uh, a fixed fee or kind of like an hourly rate on the financial planning side of it? And so removing kind of that aspect from the from how wealthy or the, the assets the client has? Yes, but it's it's kind of uh, I can't pronounce it. Imogen is nascent. Is that the word? It's just getting going, right? This is not every firm. Uh, we should do a Twitter poll on how to pronounce that. Um, but there's a few, I think, kind of whether they're disruptors or innovators or leaders or whatever, looking to do that kind of thing. But of course, for most advisor firms, the outside of pressures with regulatory costs and PI and that kind of stuff, uh, I think the market's working very well. Um, you know, uh, that report uh, from Octopus that was out the other day was saying something like seven in 10 advisors are turning clients away, you know, yeah. th which is another way of saying that there's an advice gap, by the way. But for, for firms that are uh, in the business of taking on new clients, there's no shortage of great business. And that business can be well served profitably at 0.8% a year or 1% a year, whatever it is people charge. Um, so, again, you know, the pressure isn't necessarily being felt yet, but I think in this market, what tends to happen is some crazy people go out and do some very, very different things. Then some less crazy, but smart people start to say, actually, we could do something with that. And over time, it starts to come into practice. So I think, you know, in again, in that kind of five, 10 year look, um, which seems a long way away, but man, RDR was, you know, um, RDR is longer ago than you think it is now. Uh, and we're all, well, not you, Imogen, obviously, but the rest of us are, <laughs> you know, um, aging rapidly. Um, and uh, Range Remember, although Nick does look very good, uh, obviously on it. Um, so there it is. But I, I, I think there is space for this stuff to, to change quite fundamentally. Sure. Tim, what do you think? Can you see a future for, for advice businesses changing the way that Mark's talking about? Um, I, I'm not so sure, certainly for the sort of one, two, three man band side uh, type of business, that there will be necessarily a, a, a splitting between a company that's got the bit that provides all the investment bit, the regulated expensive stuff and the, the financial planning, financial coaching. Um, I think, um, and something that I've really noticed over recent months is that there's been a far greater value attaching to um, the investment planning side of things. Clients probably sort of with a bit more time on their hands <laughs> have been saying, oh, I've got all these pensions. I've no idea which funds I'm invested in, what the risk profile is. Um, I'll phone up Tim, what's going on here? And we'll say, well, we'll, we'll, we'll do uh, some risk profiling. This is what we go through here. You get a report on, on, on that. What we'll then do is determine what sort of fund do you want? Is it cheaper end, more expensive, multi-assets? Do you want a full fat uh, bespoke version with the, the, the cost associated with that? Then you'll get a report based upon each of your different um, pensions uh, or, or investments from the, uh, the, the funds that you've got there. Then what we'll do is make the appropriate recommendations. And uh, what we found is that we've got, uh, in fact, I think at the moment, we've got six, six new clients that we're just uh, bringing on board precisely because we talked about the, um, uh, not only the initial uh, investment planning, but also the ongoing service. And um, uh, we found that uh, the work that we put into our CIP uh, several years ago and the processes and the presentational 
uh, tools around that um, have, have really started to uh, to be very worthwhile for us. Um, something that was significant is we had some uh, management consultants uh, come in and it was very expensive in terms of uh, time uh, of theirs and ours, um, but also in terms of the, of the artistic uh, the presentational uh, paperwork, but now uh, with the, the value from that has been absolutely outstanding, um, worth every single penny to sharpen that axe. And, and certainly if, if we had the FCA come in and say, well, Tim, um, what's all this about your, your CIP? What's what's going on? What are the services you're doing to justify your uh, your ongoing fees? I just say, right, well, here are the documents. Read those. If you've got any queries, come back to me. Uh, so it's a double edge there. Good for business. Good for the integrity uh, of the uh, of the business, and good for dealing with the FCA. Sure. Nick, any thoughts on this? Yeah, I was just wanting to come back on a point that Mark made, actually, and this was a, a stat I hadn't seen. Maybe I, maybe I heard wrongly there. I think you said seven out of ten uh, prospective clients being turned away by uh, advisors. Was, was that? It, it was a report um, that came out from Octopus the other day. I think they said seven out of ten firms um, had been turning okay. clients away. Okay. All right. Well, that's... Um, that's probably or potentially uh, a less frightening stat, but you know, I mean, actually, <laughs> yes, yeah. But actually, in truth, it still uh, it still throws, you know, put, cast light on something which is pretty, pretty worrying, really, isn't it? There, there can't be many professions, perhaps particularly at the moment, or businesses where actually um, suppliers are uh, are turning away customers in in in, in the broadest sense. Uh, and that's, you know, that, that, that's got to be something that we've got to deal with. And I wonder if some of that does come back to um, the, the fee-based question and whether actually um, there's a kind of a segment of your client base that you look at in, 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 the, in maybe something which is more uh, pretty similar to how it works currently in terms of services and charging model. And then maybe different segments of clients who are maybe at the moment are regarded um, without being disparaging as less attractive um, actually can be more attractive with a service that is kind of segmented in itself and maybe doesn't cover as, as much and is maybe charged at a different level. Quite interesting if that focus more on planning rather than implementation, that would be quite an interesting way of, 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 of thinking about it. Um, ultimately, I think when you look at many other industries, there's a, there's a huge move at the moment in, in, across many to... to um, to perform sort of personalization at scale is, is kind of what it's often called. You know, i.e. you're providing services that are as digitized where you can possibly make them. So then the personalized bits, the face-to-face, -face, the bits that involve people can be dealt with just a, on a more focused level. So you can actually deliver an all-around service that is a combination of technology to deliver some bits of it and, and humans to deliver the other bits of it. I wonder if actually we need to work harder and, and further as a profession and industry and you know that partly relates to what we do as well as part of that but it's probably more than just us to try and get to a world where actually these people can get some element of financial advice it might be different from the way in which the the, the wealthier clients are serviced but um i suspect some advice is better than no advice yeah sure i guess another part of 
the when we talk about this advice gap and closing it, we talk about uh, advice businesses becoming more efficient and therefore they can service more clients and bring down the cost, which closes the advice gap. And that links into the technology that we're talking about. Um, the Lancat report, it said that uh, KIPs are so central, they can determine the efficiency of your advice business. I'm really interested in kind of digging into a little bit about like what are the practical things that advice firms can do to improve the efficiency of their KIP, which in turn, hopefully, can close the advice gap. Um, open floor. So a, a big part of that, um, I, I think, is kind of careful what you wish for. So um, we see firms routinely putting together, you know, beautifully constructed models with um, some quite complex elements to them. Uh, and they're doing that because first of all, they think it's the right thing to do. But second of all, they want to differentiate themselves and be a bit smarter on what they do. But then the rubber hits the road, right? And they use maybe, I don't know, three or four different platforms, uh, depending on what's right for a particular client. And when it comes to rebalance day, they put the kettle on and kind of spend most of the day on it and that's not much use and you build in more and more and more and more um, friction in terms of administration if you're running advisory models uh, that have you know, let's say relatively high portfolio turnover rates um, then we've got constant issues post MIFID uh, with what we call the trail of dead which is the, the kind of old models with versions stretching back quarter after quarter after quarter that still have clients in them who didn't say it was okay to rebalance. Now, technology like, such as IntelliFlow is starting to work on that kind of stuff, or, or Nick might say, actually, we've been doing this for a while, Mark, don't say we're starting. Um, <laughs> but there's lots of people trying to attack some of this stuff. But the truth is uh, that the advisory model, which is you know a, a really, really popular way still of, of running a centralized investment proposition, it kind of doesn't fit very well. It's very, very inefficient administratively. Uh, and so either like lots of work's going to have to get done to, to try and take away some of the friction there or how firms stitch together what they think of as a KIP would change. And bear in mind that something like a multi-asset fund is a KIP too. Uh, KIP is a process. It's not a portfolio. It's the way in which you decide what kind of investment solution, horrible word, is appropriate for client groups. So there's, you know, you can build the cleverest stuff or you can build quite simple stuff, but the way you choose to do that will determine how much time you spend on admin. Uh, and that's gotta be a cost, particularly for smaller businesses. Sure. Uh, any other thoughts on that, guys? For what it's worth, the, the, the process that we run, that I sort of described um, briefly earlier, uh, we'll look at the, we, we don't set up to be um, fund managers, that's that's not my skill. And I'm really quite concerned that an awful lot of IFAs really do fancy themselves as fund pickers or something. We don't have the technical wherewithal. We, we just, well, I'm not capable of doing it. And I, I'm sure that many people who are dealing with that really perhaps shouldn't be. Um, so the style that we use is to, first of all, look at somebody's risk process, then the style of funds, do you want actives or passives? Do you want risk profiles? Do you want risk um, risk targeted? How much do you want to pay for that? Uh, and at that point, we're starting to sort of filter down uh, and get from 50 or 60 funds down to perhaps a dozen. Um, and uh, then we'll look at, well, uh, we'll, we'll, we buy in the qual and the quant analysis from DT, from Trustnet, from Morningstar. So you're layering all of those different um, 
different levels of analysis. And eventually, we might get up to, to two funds in one particular area. And if it's not a, a vast amount of money, at that point, we just say, well, whichever one's the cheapest. Um, so it, although it's a kit, it's, and this ties in very, very neatly with, with, with Nick's comment, we just refer to it as a sausage machine because you, you just put the stuff in at the top and it, it, it comes out at the bottom and it's reasonably automated. Um, but what you're not tending to bump into is the massive friction with people who haven't responded to stuff because actually it's, it's very straightforward. It's Mr. Smith, we've sent you this, it's all pre-populated, sign it. Um, and, and, and it just works. So I, I think that there'll be a recognition that the issues that Mark was talking about, the, the fact that people forget to send back and, and the fact that you then end up with half a dozen kits of varying um, heritages, various effectiveness, it's just going to make the administration just crazy. Um, even some of the more um, elegant solutions whereby you can have shared portals uh, so that people can log on and do things there, or clients doing a bit of self-service, you've still got a phenomenal amount of drag and that inefficiency. And if you're having to chase somebody half a dozen times to uh, return some paperwork so you bring them back on board uh, until six months later you have to do it again, I, I think it's just a nightmare. It's, it's just setting five to 50 pound notes on administration. Sure. Nick? Yeah, um, uh, I, I, I like the sausage machine factory uh, a, a, analogy. I mean, essentially, yeah, a, a kip, and I think Mark referred to it too, is 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 a process. And you know, if you can uh, have a comprehensive and consistent process um, that's compliant and scalable, then you you know you're halfway there. That's that, that that's got to be a key part of it. Which I guess is you know what's um, why kips can be really. Um, fundamental in the efficiency of advice businesses but you you also probably need to look beyond some of the, beyond that and some of the ancillary processes it depends what approach you take T tim outlined the, the approach uh, his business takes which is which is absolutely sound uh, there are any number of flavors of different kips out there of people doing things different ways i think depending on the way you as a business look at it um, you kind of need to be honest with yourselves about what works and what doesn't work because uh, you know that that's fundamental to all of us as businesses. We all have to constantly look at look at that and I think um, some of the processes that that um, that Mark referred to you know particularly client communication recommendation acceptance all that kind of stuff um, can be delivered more effectively ironically, I think it comes back to that personification at scale bit that I was talking about before, uh, which I think actually enhances and can enhance the advisors. Um, interface and um, 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 trust and, and reputation with the client because it then compounds the rest of it, which is delivered face-to-face -face and, and is the very personalized stuff about understanding your client, you know, their hopes, dreams, aspirations, that, 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 that kind of stuff. So um, I think that there's, a, there's a continual demand on all of us to say, right, can we do things a bit better? Uh, and... Um, uh, with some humility, Mark, uh, we are at the beginning of this of this bit. I wouldn't say we're, we're a long way down the track, but we think we're delivering some efficiencies already, and, and our intention is to carry on investing behind that and making it better each day. Awesome. Okay, cool. Tim, Mark, Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Stay tuned after the break for some analysis of the latest hot topics.
Welcome back to the FT Advisor podcast. Scams has been a hot topic over the past few months as fraudsters have eyed the coronavirus crisis as a new way to con consumers out of their cash. Early this week, the regulators launched a new Scam Smart campaign in a bid to raise awareness among consumers as they found more than £30 million has been lost to pension scams in the past three years alone. Joining me is Amy Austin and Rachel Mortimer, senior reporters at FT Advisor. Amy, what makes pensions so attractive to scammers? I think it's because they are such a big asset. For example, you know, a bank account may have £500 in it or it might have £1,000, you know, so on and so forth. But with pensions, I mean, people can have millions of pounds in there, you know, hundreds of thousands. So they and they can take it all in one big lump sum so for them like pensions are the perfect asset to get hold of um, and this is just why they're being targeted so heavily sure um there's obviously been uh, like a lot of work done to try and mitigate uh the effects scams have um why are people still being targeted this way i think it's because there are things being done but i, I still think to these scammers it's easy You know, if you've got a little old lady on her own, no grandkids, you know, no one to look after her. And I mean, I know with my own nan and granddad, like they have no idea with the internet. They have mobile phones, like clueless, and they'll get phoned up. Someone will say, oh, hey, here's your pension. You know, you could leave your grandkids even more than you want to. And to them, this is such an attractive offer that they just say, oh, yes, sounds good. Here's my details, because they're just not aware I mean, the FCA are targeting people, you know, adults and young youngsters nowadays, which is good because then when we get older, you know, maybe we'll drive scams out because we'll be so mm. aware of their tactics and, you know, know how to avoid them. I mean, you yourself must get emails. You know what to look for when you get a scam email. You know, it's the email sure. address, the header, you know. We all get them. We must, I must get like one a week. So Yeah. I've actually just got a few uh, asking me to invest in Bitcoin in all that like stupid writing that isn't a real font. And I mean, I do think who the hell must fall for this, but I'm, there has to be people that that just that they just don't know. So do you think it's like down to education, really, to, to for us to drive out scams? I think so. But then at the same time, you know, some of these people that are being scammed are financially savvy because, I mean, the likes of me and you at our age and, you know, what we do, we aren't actively looking to invest in these massive, you know, over schemes, etc. But to an avid investor, they'll see it and they'll go, oh, that looks cool. That's that's something new. Maybe I'll look into it. So it is the financial savvy. Yeah. Whereas, you know, back to the little old lady at home she's probably going to think like what on earth is that I won't bother I don't even know what that is about but for people actively looking for investments it could look extremely enticing I think it depends on it depends on when you're approached by them as well if you're particularly stressed or run down or have got a lot on your plate then you know I've I've had moments even as a financial journalist where it's taking a couple of seconds to think oh hang on something's not right here but you can imagine if you're rushed off your feet, dropping the kids at school, having your own difficult time at work. Um, or, you know, you, you, you're caring for, for a loved one. Absolutely, you can be caught off your guard. And suddenly, you know, it doesn't matter how much education you've had in, in that field. You can, you can definitely fall victim to them. Yeah, if they if the scammer hits the right nerve with the right person, then anyone is vulnerable, really, aren't they? Um, I think 
you often have people kind of after bereavement that are like dealing with um, like probate and wills and uh, life insurance and stuff and all of this financial stuff is coming through and you must imagine that those people are particularly vulnerable which I mean it's why it makes it so nasty. Um, mm. Guys do you think the regulators will ever be able to stop scams completely? No I don't think so I think scammers they're like you can't underestimate them they are clever people they're not you know they're not uneducated they're very clever and they they I don't know they just evolve you know we've got phishing scams you know we didn't have phishing scams back in the day but now we do and you know they they will find more and more different ways to target you you know if it's email I don't know because we've had the cold calling ban so you get less and less on the phones for pension scams now but they've all they've done is jumped over to emails and to you know Google sites and all stuff like that. So I don't think they'll ever eradicate it, but I do think they're getting better at dealing with it and trying to find a way, you know, to stop this. Sure. Yeah, I agree. I think um, Andrew Bailey said himself earlier this year or last year that the FCA are basically playing whack-a-mole with these type of things because they're constantly evolving with with new ways of of, of trying to scam people um, and and the way that the FCA and this isn't necessarily a criticism because they regulate so many firms and so many areas of of, of the financial industry um, that they do have quite a reactive way of of dealing with these problems. You can't always get ahead of the game because it's just it's it's impossible. Sure. Now moving on to the world working from home. It's expected that technology will sometimes let us down, but one time you'd be praying for this not to happen is during an exam. Candidates sitting exams with the Chartered Insurance Institute hit stumbling blocks this week. Rach, what happened? Yeah, so some um, very unhappy candidates last week. Uh, for the figures that we have on the Thursday, so that's August 21st, um, as you say, it's it's all done remotely now, um, but the multiple qu choice questions online, 23 of the 245 candidates, that's 10%, that's quite a lot, um, were unable to sit their exam. And as you say, you know, I don't think anyone particularly loves or looks forward to exams. I am awful. I get so stressed. Um, so you can imagine the extra pressure that this adds. Uh, the CII put it down to technical issues. Um, it was had examples of candidates being kicked out of the exam midway and not knowing whether they'd been penalised for it or whether their exam had even been submitted and some candidates wow. who just couldn't even can get into the exam um, at all. So, yeah, it's a stressful time. Uh, and this isn't the first time the CII has been hit with these technical issues this summer, right? It's not. Their systems went down in July as well. Um, that seemed to be on a slightly larger scale, um, given right. the, the the complaints that were going around um, to the CII on Twitter. Uh, but yeah, I mean, similar things, technical issues. Uh, the CII said it just meant it was a 15 minute delay getting into the exam. But uh, we were hearing from candidates who couldn't, who couldn't contact the CII or get into the exam for hours. Um, you know, it comes at a particularly difficult time where uh, the, the job market perhaps isn't um, as good as obviously it was before the pandemic. We know that and we know there's there's further trouble down the line there as well. Um, so with advisors who are perhaps waiting on the results of these exams to pursue their own career uh, and, and take a step forward with that, this comes at a really difficult time for them. Yeah, I can imagine that that, that would be particularly stressful at the moment. Um, for those candidates who were unable to sit the exam, what, what's their position now? 
So the CII says that anyone who wasn't able to sit the exam as a result of the technical issues will be allowed to rebook. Um, but again, that obviously doesn't solve the problem that that could be three months down the line. And, and some of our advisors now are having to pause their, their career path um, as waiting for that next opportunity uh, to sit the exam when they feel that it wasn't their fault anyway, it was out of their control. Sure. And you and you prepare for stuff, you, you revise for a certain date and then if you have to do that in three months time that that's completely messed up your your schedule hasn't it absolutely yeah totally thanks for listening to the ft advisor podcast tune in next week for the next episode hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain i learned this the hard way after losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.